All right, we are in uh, the Gospel of Matthew tonight still. We are in chapter 25, and uh, we have what um, the parable I like a whole lot. Um, so I'm excited to, to talk about this tonight. But if you want to, you can turn to them in the Pew Bibles if you want, or it'll be on the screen. I'm actually going to be reading to you from the Common English Bible. I just happen to like this translation of this parable. So uh, it may sound slightly different in a couple places. Uh, but let's go, uh, go ahead and look at this. I'm excited to kind of talk through uh, what I think are uh, some important things that are said here. Uh, Matthew 25, verses 14 uh, through 30 says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one he gave five valuable coins, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He gave each to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on a journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had, who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, Excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. Now the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. And I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, You evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown, and I gather crops where I have not spread seed? In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers, so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has ten coins. Those who have much will receive more, and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks, thanks be to God. All right, so once again, we have a parable and Jesus has left us some work to do here. Uh, we often in our, in our lives prefer boring stories, you know, the kind where the good guys and the bad guys are easily identified and categorized. But Jesus does us no such favors in this parable or honestly in most of his parables, and I believe that's a good thing. But depending on how you read this parable, the wealthy person, right, the, the master, uh, is either a good guy or a complete tyrant. The first two servants are either very wise or total brown nosers, and we've all worked with those people, right? The third servant could either be foolish or... Maybe he's a victim in an economic system that has set him up to fail. And I will go ahead and tell you, after once again revisiting this and studying the commentaries and stuff this week, 
I will tell you that there is a qualified biblical scholar out there that will confirm any of these readings that you prefer. So you are in good company however you read it. Now, in the, tonight I'm not going to try to solve this parable or tell you exactly what it's supposed to mean. That's not how parables work, right? Parables resist neat and tidy explanations. What's beautiful about a parable, the reason why Jesus so often used parables is because every time we return to them, new layers of meaning become unlocked. They read us anew just like we read them anew each time. I won't try and solve the parable. However, I do want to reflect a little more deeply on the part of the story that jumps out most to me, that just kind of glows in this text. And what stands out most starkly to me is what's happening in between the two ears of the third servant. What happens in his mind? And maybe I'm drawn here because I've spent a lot of my own life, and I don't know if you can relate to this or not, stuck inside my own head, thinking a lot about things and trying to figure things out. And I tend to get stuck in my own head in such a way that I sometimes am afraid to even really get out there and get involved in the game of life, so to speak, right? I sit and contemplate instead of getting out there and doing. And so maybe I'm just attracted to this third servant for that reason. I want to tell you a story that is uh, embarrassing enough that I'm, I'm glad that not everyone is here for this holiday week, probably. But in, the, in, this, I, in this vein, I remember uh, arriving at college in 1900. And when I arrived at college, I had spent the couple months leading up to college figuring out exactly the new person I was going to be. I was very excited to go to a new place, and uh, I was determined to be different from the unpopular and unimpressive high schooler that I desperately wanted to leave behind. And I was going to a bigger pond with more fish, very few of whom knew me, and I was going to get to redefine who I was, and I was carefully cultivating that image and deciding what kind of person I was going to be. I was going to be cooler. I was going to be more artistic and brooding. I was going to wear dark clothes and grow my hair out. I had a lot of great plans, right? I was crafting this in my head. Now, I had a plan to become a cooler person, but working against my creation of a cool persona was the fact that I didn't even get past the first day of orientation before I saw a girl on campus and became instantly enamored with her. And as tends to happen with me in my life up to this point, uh, if I saw a girl that I was enamored with, all semblances of coolness were instantly evaporated. It was a problem I had. She was on stage during an orientation. She was pretty and funny and in a skit and was, you know, talented and I was smitten from a distance, didn't even know her name, and she had never even seen me before. Now, I decided that this person was someone that I was supposed to get to know, that we were intended uh, to have a future together, based on my extensive knowledge of her for the five minutes she was on stage. And as an unknown incoming freshman, and she being a popular person who was already involved in everything, and apparently everyone knew I knew that I was going to have to do something bold and decisive and brave. The cool new Mike was going to have to show up to get her attention. So I made a decision. I decided to find out what her name was, to find out what her mailbox number was, and begin writing her anonymous love notes under a pseudonym, leaving them in her campus mailbox. Because, you know, I was brave and bold and cool. That's what cool guys did, right? Nothing a girl likes more than someone who won't tell them their name and is too scared to talk to them. 
So I set about this plan. In my head, it made perfect sense at the time. Like many other 18-year-olds, I had no game, and that's okay. After a few weeks, and I do said yes, weeks, and several lengthy and cringeworthy letters, I happened to be at the mailboxes one day when she and her roommate came to her mailbox, opened it, and retrieved one of the letters that I had just dropped in there. And so I had an opportunity to witness the opening of this letter and the revealing of what was happening. I stood at a distance pretending to read my own mail so I could watch her and her roommate's reaction. They pulled it out of the mailbox, quickly shot a look at each other, recognizing what what it was, because again, it was not the first And they quickly opened it and began to read it together and point at things and kind of whisper and talk and giggle and all these kinds of things, right? And I don't even remember exactly what I saw from a distance. I couldn't hear what they were saying, but something about the way they reacted devastated me. I watched the way they reacted and suddenly it was like the lights were turned on and I realized I am not cool Mike like I thought I was, right? Something about the reaction instantly let me know that they were, in fact, mocking the author of these letters, and I felt stupid. I felt so stupid. And so I immediately took the brave step of ending our blossoming romance, and I wrote no more letters, right? I ended the romance, the romance that she had never actually agreed to, uh, with an object of her affection that she did not know and towards whom she had shown no romantic inclination whatsoever. I still made the bold choice of ending it all, right? Plainly put, my first college dating relationship both revolved around a girl named Amy and yet somehow didn't actually involve her at all. It was a relationship that took place exclusively in my own imagination. It was the stuff of Shakespearean sonnets, if Shakespearean sonnets were really bad 18-year-old poetry that was unreadable. So this was my first foray into romance in college. And this personal travesty of mine is what I think about when I read this parable. And bear with me, I will bring it back around. To my mind, this entire story points us towards a relationship that did not actually exist. Now before we get there, I want to take a moment because I think in our English translation, there's one thing in particular that is pertinent that we lose in our translation of this parable. And it's understandable in English that we lose it. But you should know that this is kind of an absurd story setting, right? Every one of these valuable coins, or you may have heard it called talents, which is the specific name of the the coins that were used, every one of these talents or valuable coins was worth about 20 years for the average person's salary in those days. 20 years. And so I did the math. I googled what average Mississippi salary is. Apparently it's about $50,000. I don't know if that... uh, depresses you or makes you feel good about yourself, don't raise your hand or uh, ask for prayer requests. We'll trust you with it. But based on that math, if this parable took place in Mississippi today, to the first servant, uh, the person would have given, uh, there would have been a Mississippian who had trusted their assets to three different employees. To one, they would have given $5 million. To the second, $2 million. And to the last, $1 million. And then the story would still play out, right? I make that point to let you know that this is an exorbitant amount of money. A bigger check than most of us in this room will ever receive, unless, of course, you're a televangelist like myself, you will probably never see a check of this size, right? It's a ton of money. It's a setting of abundance. 
It's the kind of money that you have every right to expect will make more money because that's the world we live in, right? If you have a lot, you make a lot. The third servant gets less than the other ones, for sure. But he gets a lot more than a servant should ever expect to get in that situation. In fact, to leave this kind of money buried in the ground and have it not gain any value would be unheard of. You would be the worst wealth manager of all time. You have to work not to make more money with money like this. It's possible, but you could argue it's aggressively dumb. It just wouldn't happen, right? No one, the idea that someone would accept this kind of money and then just sit on it and do nothing is truly bizarre. It wouldn't happen, except it does happen, right? So the question becomes, and I think this text points towards this, why does this happen? And thankfully, the parable gives us a gift because it explains exactly why this played out the way it did. Remember, verse 24 and 25, it says this, Now the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. And I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, have what's yours. The servant was afraid. He was deeply fearful of who he believed the master to be. He knew, deep down, he just knew what the master was really like hard-hearted, someone who only takes for themselves even when it doesn't belong to them, someone to be feared. And though we never actually had a conversation with the master, the master never lays this out or does anything in our story anyways to display this, master never says what he wants or doesn't want specifically, this servant acted according to who he believed the master to be, independent of who the master actually was. So you may ask the question, was the third servant right? Was the master as mean and terrible as the third servant thought he was? We don't know, right? Because the master responds, but you could interpret it a couple different ways. The master says, you knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. And you can read that of one of two ways. You could read it as a confession on behalf of the master, right? Oh, you know this about me. Like, you know this is true of me. So why would you act like this? Because this is true. Maybe he's owning up to being that awful of a person. Or you can read it as an indictment on the, ser- on the servant. Oh, you knew this about me, did you? Right? Like, oh, you thought that I was like this. I tend to read it as that second thing. I tend to read it as an indictment on the, service, on the servant, but I don't know that it really matters, right? Because either way, as a function of the story, only the third servant believes it. The third servant is the only one who makes a point of believing that the master is this hard and terrible kind of person. And only that third servant acts out of fear. No one else believes it about the master. No one else thinks the master handed off all this uh, huge sums of money just as some kind of trap. Only the third servant believes it, and it costs that servant dearly. I think we've all been in this kind of space a time or two, right? in the uncomfortable position of realizing that what we believe about someone else will always be effectively true about them in regards to our relationship with them, right? If I am convinced that someone doesn't like me, if I'm convinced that someone is angry at me, it determines the course of our relationship, whether it's true of that person or not. If I believe it about them, then I watch their actions and my confirmation bias kicks in 
Everything they do just confirms what I already believe, and it'll play out like it's true even if it wasn't. You've been there before, right? You've had someone who thought you were mad at them, but you weren't, or maybe it was vice versa. They were suffering under your imagined disdain while you were unaware there was even a problem. Whether you were actually mad at them had little bearing on the results, as long as they believed it was true of you. To a large extent, we often get the relationships we imagine. And it, I believe it's probably more true of our relationship with God than any other relationship we have, particularly when it feels like God is late getting back like this master, right? I know for me, and I've shared this with you many times, the watershed moment of my personal faith didn't come in a theology class. It didn't come in, in Sunday school or Bible class, which I was in six out of seven days a week my entire life. It didn't come in some ministry task that I performed one day. Without a doubt, the single most transformative thing I ever experienced in my life of faith was when I changed who I believed God to be. It was when my sense of who God is and what God's character was was adjusted for the better. I grew up in church. I grew up in Christian school. I believed in God with all my... I said the prayer when I was four years old out in the hallway with Mrs. Todd. Now, I thought she was pretty. I wanted some alone time with her. That's true. But I meant it as much as any four-year-old could mean it. I gave my life to God then, and I believed in God. I, I never even thought about a time in my life when God wasn't a part of things. But even with all of that history, I had always lived with an image of God that was either communicated to me or I had arrived at myself. I'm not sure which, probably both. But I lived with an image of God as being deeply disappointed or angry with me. Understanding all the ways that I had failed, all the ways that I wasn't who I was supposed to be, all the ways I had sinned that no one else knew about, fill in the blank. I just knew God was angry at me. I knew God was disappointed in me. And it wasn't until I was 19 years old at school uh, when a traveling speaker, who was a bit of an odd guy, but in a very effective speaker, got up in a college chapel and preached an entire message about unconditional love. And something about that person's portrayal of it that day in that moment switched the lens for me. It turned on the light switch. It began my relationship with God as it is now and who I believe God to be, and it ended the relationship I had with the God I had imagined previously. It genuinely changed everything. When I finally came to believe the thing that I, and it's the reason why I end up saying it probably every week at some point, when I came to believe and understand that God was love without condition, that there's nothing I can do to make God love me more or less than God already does, that changed everything. I am who I am today, and I do what I do today as a direct result of that specific realization, realizing who God really was. Like the third servant in this story, there is simply no way for me to live into the abundance made available to me as long as I believe the master to be petty or angry or easily disappointed. Our image of the one with whom we seek relationship is always limited to our imagination of who we think them to be. It always creates a ceiling that we can't break through. I would argue it's one of the greatest gifts of the incarnation, what we celebrate each week here in this room and at the communion table, to believe that God came in the flesh and dwelt among us. It's the great gift of incarnation to believe that Jesus is the definitive answer to the question, what is God really like? The embodied means by which we clear away all the false images we have carried for so long 
I don't believe there's a more important question you can ask yourself than what is God really like? How does God really feel about me? Because it will establish the ceiling of whatever faith you hope to have one day. What we believe about God matters immensely, just as it did for this third servant. Now, three years after I stopped my letter-writing campaign, I was hanging out with my now good friend, Amy. As it turned out, in the three years uh, after me uh, stopping the romance that she didn't know about, uh, we got to know each other. We ended up hanging out with a lot of the same friends. We became good friends over those three years. I may have harbored a small crush on her still, but I had gotten accustomed to the fact that we were friends and had no plans otherwise. It was, and just enjoyed her company, and we, we were good friends. Uh, she was a year older than me, and she had just graduated. I was just finished my second to last year at school. And she had gotten a job with a traveling theater production and was getting ready to go live her dreams. And so a bunch of us went out for one last night to hang out and to wish her well. We were all hanging out, went to a friend's concert, and as the crowd dwindled off during the night, it ended up being just Amy and I at the end of the night still talking and reminiscing and just having fun. Uh, I will say before I get to this next part that there was no alcohol involved as I did not partake at that point in my life, uh, which, I, which may be more disturbing for what we were doing. Um, I don't know. Anyways, we were downtown West Palm Beach, Florida. In downtown West Palm Beach, Florida, we've got, they've got these very short blocks that are all segmented by stop signs where all the restaurants and the place where our friend had been playing a concert. And there's something that uh, me and my friends used to do in downtown West Palm when we were bored, and uh, we thought it was hilarious. It's the kind of thing that 20-year-old Mike thought was the greatest thing in the world, and 49-year-old Mike would just shake his head at. But we used to, uh, we used to race cars, is what we would say. And I don't mean get in a car and race, uh, because my 87 Honda Accord hatchback was not up to that task. No, what we would do is we would line up on the side of the road, like uh, right just off the sidewalk, right at a stop sign, and we'd get ourselves in like a starter position like you would see in a 50-yard dash uh, in the Olympics. And we would just hold that position, and it didn't matter who was walking by on the sidewalks or what was going on, we would stay there like a statue and let people stop and look at us and try and figure out what was going on, but you just, you never broke concentration. That was part of, part of the, what you did. And then we would wait for the car, the, whatever next car happened to come up and pull up and stop at the stop sign. And when they stopped at the stop sign, they would inevitably look out their window at whatever weirdo was standing there or, or crouched down with one hand on the ground like they're getting ready to do a race. And when they looked over, what your job to do was in the starting position to look over at them and give them one of these and look real serious at them. And they would be confused. But you just keep looking at them until eventually they take their foot off the brake to go past the stop sign. As soon as they take their foot off the brake, we would start running as fast as we possibly could like we were racing them. Sometimes people would just stop because it confused them and they're afraid they're going to hit an idiot college student on the street. Sometimes someone would get the joke and they would gun it and just blow you out of the water. But we would race the cars down each block and we just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. If they stopped, we would get to the next block. We would celebrate. We would point at them like we had just won the game. It was, we, we just thought it was great. So I had told Amy about this sport, and she decided she wanted to take part. So Amy and I were racing cars downtown, having a great time. She got, I don't know how she had managed to avoid this the entire time she'd be my friend, because I did it a lot. We did this a lot. I don't know why. Again, there was no drinking involved. Maybe, maybe we were looking for other things to do. So we're, we've been racing cars for like 20 minutes and just laughing and having a good time, and 
you know, pretty soon we're, we're tired from racing and we're sitting on the little park bench kind of thing right there in downtown and we're laughing and she's starting to go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I, I leave and I'm not going to live here anymore and all this stuff. I know, it's great. I remember that time we did this? Yeah, and we're kind of reminiscing and laughing and having a good time. And then Amy says, I, re- I remember when you were a freshman, you were so shy when you first showed up. It's really funny to me that I know you now and you're nothing like, oh, I know. And then I don't know what I was thinking. But something about the moment and reminiscing and laughing, and she's laughing and I'm laughing, and I say, you know what's really funny is when, you, when I first got here, I had a little bit of crush on you, and I wrote these anonymous love letters to you, and oh my gosh, they were the worst thing. And then suddenly she just stopped laughing. And I looked over, and she was just staring. I mean, she was sitting right here, she was just staring at me, no smile on her face, and said, wait, what? And I wanted, I, I may have peed a little, I'm not sure. <laughs> Cold flop sweat, like, uh, you know, like all of a sudden, it was wet. like if I could have pulled those words back and shoved them back into my face, right? And I tried to, I tried to keep, you know, the lighthearted, oh, it's no big deal, it's just a funny thing. And she's like, no, wait, what? You were writing those letters? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, I wrote, I know, they were done. She's like, you wrote those letters? Yes, I, yes, I wrote those letters. I'm sorry. It's embarrassing. I, don't, I should not have said anything. She's like, do you have any idea how much those letters meant to me? I said, you know, obviously not. Uh, <laughs> you know. She's like, my roommates and I, we had them pinned to the wall. We were trying all year to figure out who had written these letters. They were like the nicest thing anyone ever, like going on and on and on. And I was just, you know, slowly dying inside. And, uh, and she, said, she said, at some point she said, you know, why didn't you tell me? And, and I remember I mean, that was embarrassing. Not to mention, it's fine. we're friends. You know, we've been hanging out. Like the year before, we had gone to Disney World with a bunch of people, and she and I had hung out a lot there. Like we had fun. We were good friends. Like it's, I was, you know, it was, I can't tell you about. I couldn't have told you. I said honestly, what would you have done if I had told you anyways? And she leaned in towards me, and said, "These are the last words she spoke to me in person." She leaned in close and said, "I would have gone to Disney with you a lot sooner," and then got up and left. Now, all turned out well. As you know, I was a couple years away from finding, you know, the true woman of my dreams, who I did talk to in person with my mouth. <laughs> Even one time asking her to marry me, and she said yes. So all's well that ends well. But to 20-year-old Mike, that was a dagger in the heart, right? Obviously. Again, everything turned out well for me. But I think it's a good example of this very truth that we find in this parable. What I thought to be her mocking of the letters was actually her and her friends excitedly reading them, trying to figure out who the author was because it meant something to them. What I believed to be her dismissiveness was actually affection. Because very often we get the relationship we imagine. So, let us take a good, hard look at the one that we celebrate each week who answers the biggest question we can ask. What is God like? Let us accept the God who is better than the one we have traditionally imagined. Let us trust in that God's goodness and exorbitant gifts to us. And don't miss the Disney trip.
Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are, we are grateful that you are a God who did not just create the world and leave it to be, but you are a God who took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. That through the person of Jesus, through the teachings of Jesus, through the life and death and resurrection of Christ, we can answer the question to as much certainty as one can have. We can answer the question, what is God like? God, we confess that we so often relate to you in ways that are not, uh, not you at all. That we approach, you, we approach you timidly like you are disappointed in us. We stay away from you altogether because we believe you are angry. That we do not give you credit for being the God of unconditional love. So God, we ask for the conviction and the courage to believe that you truly are love. That we can trust in your goodness, that we can trust in your gifts, that we can trust that you have what is best for us. That we can relate to who you really are. And not the broken image we've imagined you to be. God, we do love you. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.